the quantum mechanics. Yes, we are the quantum mechanics with a podcast that revs up the engine of the paranormal to see if we can make it purr. Well, it's funny you should say that because there is some purring going on this week. Uh, I've got some big cats. Oh, and some I've alien got, big cats. I've got some alien big cats, some oh, ABCs. ABCs. Not, not cats that are from outer space but cats who shouldn't be here and then a whole plethora of other creatures that will surprise and delight you so you know like we've spoken a lot about how obsessed i am with werewolves and i like a bit of yeti action and (laughs) uh i've always been intrigued by the loch ness monster but this is going to be a tale of lots of different sorts of unusual creatures and most of which I hadn't heard about. But whilst so I was... It's, so hard, it's going to be a zoo of the weird. Would that mm. be a good way of describing it? Absolutely. A zoo... Mm. <laughs> God, sorry. That was terrible. That was. <laughs> but the, the, there is the, the gift of the local papers um, arrived, which sort of set me off on this journey. So um, in the UK... We've kind of had a blanket of snow uh, recently, and that has set us up with a few stories. And this morning, I woke up to uh, the alert from GlasgowLive.co.uk, and they were leading with the Glasgow Bigfoot. So this is the story of Linda O'Neill, who made a bizarre discovery on her front path outside her home in Huntley Gardens in the Downerhill area, uh, where she found basically these large paw prints in the snow. So, wow. I so they, were, they weren't Bigfoot as in kind of American-style Bigfoot. Well, they like, were catty Bigfoot. We don't seem to have Bigfoots over here, do we? We're, we're, more, a, we're more the alien big cat type thing. Yeah, that's right. Well, there is supposed to be like a British wood ape, um, but that's kind of outside the scope of uh, of today. We'll come on to the British wood ape at some point. But, yeah, but that the, sounds fascinating. The these prints, to be honest, they look more to me like something baggery, something like that. But yeah. um, I thought could, it was, it was quite interesting. In the snow. Yeah, th- like I think a lot of people get divorced from what their actual local wildlife tracks look like. And so when the snow comes around so irregularly, when they see it, they kind of go, oh, what on earth is that? And then the local paper, who don't really have any qualifications in it either, go, yeah. oh, let's call it a Bigfoot, even though it's got no toes. It looks like a six-clawed animal of some sort, but it could right. be like, you know, lesser claws and it's just moved its foot around. But at the same time, when I was putting this together, really the first thing that um, struck me, because I grew up... So I started my quest for this episode looking at uh, big alien big cats because I grew up uh, in a rural location where there were reports of different big cats. And usually, you know, it would make the, the local news probably you know once a year and then there'd be talk about it in the you know the local gossip but um i don't think anyone i know ever saw anything that was particularly convincing but this this is interesting like a lot of accounts seem to refer to black panthers 
And I saw this was in The Guardian on Monday, the 15th of February. Italian mayor warns public after Black Panther sightings. So this is in the area of Italy called Puglia, where locals have reported seeing a Black Panther on the loose. And the local mayor of the area, he's issued an emergency order urging residents to avoid local fields and the areas of the countryside where the area was spotted. So basically what he's done is prohibit sporting and agricultural activities in those parts of the territory. And that is in a direct response to these fairly credible reports, it seems. And so he's taking it quite seriously. Yeah, that's the closest I've seen really to to somebody taking you know to to, to, um authorities taking this seriously if you see see what i mean yeah because it's normally a i mean certainly here in the uk it's normally a big tabloid tale with a kind of like you said normally a a blurry picture of a cat that's black in color and you know the perspective is such it could just be a cat or, you know, it could be a cardboard cutout, or you know what I mean? It's like you can't really tell what it is, but to have some kind of official close down of the area, unless they're using it as a a kind of cover to to kind of help with the COVID lockdown, (laughs) maybe. I don't know if they're in (laughs) lockdown, do you know what I mean? Don't go out there. There's Not only is there a killer virus, there's a massive, great, big, kind of alien, black, big cat out there. Well, I I suppose, like, what we always get are, like you say, blurry photographs, which could just be next door's fat cat. Um, but, it uh, like, this mayor seems convinced enough that, um, you know, somebody sorry, might sorry, get hurt. Yeah. And then on that quest, I had literally no idea that it was a British big cat society, the BBCS. BBCS. Oh, the BBCS. <laughs> And uh, they describe themselves as having sort of three elements to their mission, education, science and research. So their stated aim is uh, literally word for word off their website. The British Big Cat Society was set up to scientifically identify, quantify, catalogue and protect the big cats that freely roam the British countryside. So before we before we go on on that, there's something that's running through my head as we're talking. So. Would I be right in thinking that kind of explanations for this, apart from, you know, misinterpreting mis, uh, something, are, you know, one, escaped animals, two, normal animals that have kind of gone undetected in small numbers but still managed to find somewhere where they're not seen very often? And then there's the whole the kind of whole paranoia, paranormal cryptoid kind of angle to it. Do, where, where do the BBCS come down on that, or do they do they are they a broad church? Do you think? Well, I think they're a broad church, but pretty much they are coming at this from the angle of these are real cats which are in the wild for whatever reason, be they right. escape from a private collection or you know intentionally released because somebody bought a cub and it got too big or whatever yeah because we had something like this when i was a kid where we grew up it was kind of it was a bit countryside it it was kind of somewhere in between countryside and towny um and a, a python escaped from a pet shop 
and we had this thing where it just it was it was close to a bit of mass hysteria that went round our estate that there was a there was a python on the loose this massive snake and there was there were sightings of it all over the place and then eventually i think it was found in someone's back garden and they put a bin lid over it until it was kind of captured but you know so i mean weird stuff does escape right yeah yeah absolutely well you only have to look at um pablo escobar's um yeah. what hippopotamuses at the, at the hacienda at the hacienda I think that was the name of his ranch. Oh, it? is that Hacienda? right? Oh, I didn't yeah. realise that's what it was called. Ah, yeah, I was yeah, thinking, I, think so. I didn't know they were in a nightclub. <laughs> no, no, yeah. no. For those of you outside the UK, the, the Hacienda was a very famous uh, nightclub in Manchester, which was, uh, yeah, scene of fantastic music scenes like the Happy Mondays and New Order and stuff like that. But um, oh, well, I think they probably got their name from Pablo's place. Maybe. Ah, that makes sense. That does make sense. I was thinking temporarily there of um raving hippopotami (laughs) Um, but according to the bbcs website um norfolk has the most reported sightings they got 57 uh suffolk which is a neighboring county that's got 26 and a black panther has uh reportedly been uh seen stalking the countryside in both counties and then you move down to devon and cornwall which is where i always imagine they are probably because of you know arthur conan doyle novels as such um they've got 28 but interestingly in those two territories they've got five reports of farm animals being killed by big cats Uh, so for example in uh, december 2012 two sheep were found dead with claw marks on their backs near torrington in north devon Right. And then it goes on to describe a ram that was killed in the same month at Buckfastley on the edge of Dartmoor. And so you've kind of got this sort of tangible evidence of something being there. And these claw marks, it's like they're often, they're either like, it sort of seems like they, it's brushed under the carpet, which I guess is one of the reasons why this society exists, because they're trying to study this but it doesn't seem to like if you look on local news reports and such it never sort of says oh yeah you know this shows all the signs of this sheep being killed by a big cat you know it seems like it's often put down to you know random you know word predators or perhaps dog something like that but it seems like there is something tangible there but there, there are there are many animals in the countryside that would take on a big sheep, though, are they? I mean, I could get a lamb or something like that, but you know, foxes, I can't imagine. I mean, no. they might attack a sheep, but they'd go for something smaller if they could. Badgers can be quite vicious, but there's, there's not there's not a ton of things. It's you know, we're, we're quite dull in terms of our dangerous wildlife in the UK, aren't we? Oh, I, I absolutely, yeah, and also like, um, you know, the bigger predators which are tend to be in this country domestic so it's going to be dogs really they yeah. don't they don't kill by um scratching it would just be biting and worrying and like it's pretty clear when a sheep has been worried by a dog because it's sort of exhausted and then nibbled it isn't it doesn't have a slash down its back yeah yeah and, and i imagine um, i don't know who the bbcs uh membership is but, you know, on this one, it's one of those you've got to listen to the farmers, right? Because they're the ones who are yeah. out there in the places 
if you're going to be an animal that's kind of hiding not deliberately necessarily or just instinctively from the population or the wider population it's those kind of farm areas where only one or two people would ever visit yeah you're gonna find them right yeah absolutely it feels to me like the bbcs it's sort of like doing in the uk for big cats what mufon do for ufos sort of take takes real interest in um you like you say uh first-hand accounts and eyewitnesses but probably my favorite thing about this if there is a favorite thing to have about a roaming a roaming alien predator is what we call them because <laughs> i think this is a particularly british thing the beast of cumbria <laughs> that yeah. is a uh, supposed to be a non-native black cat like similar to a panther okay um the creature of cornwall is apparently <laughs> a lion <laughs> I mean, I suppose Lion of Cornwall doesn't, yeah. Um, yeah. The Pershaw Panther. That's a good one. I like that one. Yeah. So that that's actually not too far down the road from here. Apparently that was a couple, Robert and Nicola, were left stunned, he says, in inverted commas, after spotting a huge black cat beside the road in Pershaw. Uh, they said it stalked the car like prey. And therefore it becomes the Pershaw Panther. The, the only trouble with all of these is, like in America, it's fine. Like, you know, all your sports teams have got those kind of names. There was a time in the UK where we just haven't, we, we don't really embrace that. But rugby, which I guess is the closest we get to American football in this country, yeah. when all to spruce up their image, they started coming up with those kind of names, didn't they? Like the Wigan Tigers and stuff like that. Oh, and yeah, that, that's right, that, yeah. They all sound like a bad British attempt to name a, a sporting team in an oh, American do. style they that do. doesn't work. The Cumbrian Beasts. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, they've only had three well, wins this year. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, there is, of course, the... Uh, the Sherlock Holmes book uh, with the the, um, the Beast on the Moors. What's that yes, called? Yes, that is uh, Hound of the Baskervilles. Hound of the Baskervilles, that's right. Yes, yes. What a great story that is. I it love is. that story. And that because that is set on the Moors, whenever I was a kid and when uh, we, for reasons unknown to me now as an adult, we often used to go hiking across Bodmin Moor which is, you know, it's not the most exciting and engaging activity for an eight-year-old. But still, I was always on the lookout for (laughs) creatures. And then a few years later, when I was at university, the pie and pasty company Ginsters bought out a giant Cornish pasty that they called the Beast of Bodmin. (laughs) And I believe it used to say that it served two, but that's nonsense it it served one greedy man and i was definitely in that particular venn diagram one one half drunk student at two in the morning it was a a beautiful thing in fact thinking about it one of the things you could do with the beast of bodmin if you had one in your fridge it was so big that 
you 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 cut it in half to eat it after warming it up and if you bought some chips back there was enough room under the pastry to shove chips <laughs> under the pastry so you could have a beast of bodmin with a chip side oh it's making me hungry are you sure you're not the beast of bodmin <laughs> <laughs> uh, do you know what i could be persuaded to be wasn't um, um, the american werewolf in london as well that started off on the moors didn't it that oh yes another, yeah that kind of adds into the myth you know the fictional mythology of it all it does it does absolutely well like that is kind of similar-ish to well the, the way it starts out that kind of howling on the moors and the locals being suspicious as that is very um yeah. arthur conan doily yeah. but um just my last piece on british sort of cryptos is is wallabies and I've actually seen a wallaby, so I don't I don't know if it's well known, but um, like wallabies have got quite well established in the UK now. They're still a very rare sight, but you can see them all over the country. And interestingly, I didn't realise that um, they used to. Well, I don't know if they still do, but I've got reports of them hanging around in London's Highgate Cemetery. Which is oh, a bit really? of a callback to wow, <laughs> yeah, that's uh, really interesting. A vampire, yeah, yeah. Don't, but, so I didn't realise they were. Com- there are wild ones then, because I've seen them at places like Windsor Safari Park and stuff like that, where they kind of roam around there. But they they've either they've either escaped or been introduced, and they are they they do live in the wild as well. They do country. live I in the wild, that. yeah, yeah. Which makes me think of. Um, when we did the episode on the Canuck Chase werewolf. Oh, yeah. Because you, I remember you saying there was a, there was a couple of stories of, there was one of a, a, something that looked like a dog being seen on the motorway, but it was a kind of weird shape, and then it got onto two legs and ran off in to the distance. And I, just as you were talking, I wonder if there are wild wallabies and people aren't expecting to see them whether some uh, werewolf sightings could be put down to them because they oh, do I... they do kind of they do kind of trot on fours and then go and stand on two feet and run off on a dark That's night right, with the do. light right you might that might look completely weird and they've got those weird feet haven't they so yeah they and yeah. they've got long tails um and sort of short fur that you know it's almost uh, like greyhoundy yeah, retrievery yeah. Yeah, no, that that does make a lot of sense. That does make a lot of sense. I mean, the time that I saw it, it was just after I passed my driving test and it scared the bejesus out of me, largely because I wasn't expecting to see it. It it was, was in the wallaby, road. not a werewolf. <laughs> no, 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 it was a wallaby. <laughs> yeah. And because it, it 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 was it was as you say bending down on all fours and it was it was like finding something to eat by the side of the road, but it was in the road. And I thought, "Oh god, there's a dog." And then it came up on its back legs and I was, my brain was like, that's not a dog. And it's quite big. It's like the size of like a, you know, as a child, you know, maybe like an eight, nine year old child. Yeah, they're not, I mean, they're not what you, but again, in certain light and, you know, at night, it could be kind of distorted of how it looks. I'm thinking thinking at the top of my head here that we, um, because we did that for for anyone who uh, is listening and hasn't heard it, you should go back and listen to the episode we did on the werewolves of Canuck Chase. We did some other stuff around that area as well, but uh, it's a really good episode. Um, 
but we did a freedom of information request, didn't we, to talk about uh, yes. were- werewolf sightings and other weird kind of sightings of strange uh, animals and stuff. And I wonder if we could match some of the freedom of information requests we did around uh, werewolf sightings with known wallaby populations and see if there's any correlation between the number of sightings and the populations of wallabies. I like that idea a lot. I'm going to get onto that. Because uh, now you say it, those reports on the uh, on the motorway of something on four legs and then on two legs. Yeah. And disappearing quickly. I mean, that is something the wallabies are very good at. Yeah. Is disappearing quickly on two legs. Yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating. All right, we'll get we'll get on to that. Keep 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 listening to the podcast. We'll come back to you on that one. We should definitely yeah. check that out. Very, very much so. So after all of those animals in the UK, and like I said, we know all about uh, the Bigfoots and everything, I was really in the mood to find out about animals and cryptids that I had never really, you know, come across on a day-to-day basis and people don't talk about. And I found the perfect piece of source material. It's a book called uh, Menagerie of Mysterious Beasts, Encounters with Cryptid Creatures by Ken Gerard. I have to say, that's the best book title I think we've ever had on. Isn't it wonderful? Apart, well, it's close to Jeff, the Jeff one, but that that's pretty good. It, it's it's just wonderful. And basically, aside from like an introduction from the author about who he is and how he got to where he is, it is a compendium of people's first-hand accounts of really unusual creatures that they've come across. Whether they're paranormal or whether they are something of this earth, well, I've picked out a few, and oh, you'll brilliant. just have to make your mind up. And just to let everyone know, we um, we always do a photo album that goes along with our episode. We will put the uh, cover of that book uh, in the photo album and links to it if you're interested in getting it, because it sounds fantastic. I'm going to get it, I think. It, it really is an absolute gem. As soon as I started leafing through it, it, it sort of consumed... Um, my weekend but but it starts off really brilliantly it starts off in a period in the late 1960s and it talks about a small boy paying to see an astonishing exhibit in a a fair a county show in minnesota and that small boy as you may guess turns out to be the author right but what he was paying to see was an exhibit called the Minnesota Iceman. That was how it was built. Right. I'm, I'm and when intrigued he, already. And when he gets there, he describes this thing, whatever it was. It appeared to be covered in short brown hair and displayed a startling death grimace on its monstrous face. Seemingly halfway between man and ape, the being's true nature was a genuine mystery. He's, he's not talking about Liam Gallagher, is he? <laughs> Hang on, I'll check my notes. And uh, no, 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 he's okay. not. No, no, it's still the Minnesota Iceman. All right, cool. And um, he sort of says this is this is sort of his. I mean, I don't know if it's his road to Damascus moment, but this is the moment where he is completely enthralled. So this this creature, it's about nine foot tall. 
it's in a, a glass display case that resembles a coffin. It's obviously, as I say, it's humanoid. It, it has arms and legs and a face just like us. But in this case, it's also got gunshot wounds. It's got one through the hand and one through the head. That's, that's interesting because when you say gunshot wound to the hand, that sounds like a, that's, that's a classic defensive wound. I've watched enough CSI. Yeah. Of, that's, that, that's, my, uh, that, that's my qualification to speaking to that. But they, they, they always say that, don't they? Shot to the hand is a defensive wound. You need to have right. some level of intelligence to know to protect yourself if you're being shot in that way. Uh, absolutely, absolutely, yeah, yeah. Because wow, okay. it's the it's the obvious thing. Yeah, you hold you hold your hand up to to to, to uh, sort of deflect whatever's coming at you. Yeah. So over the course of a few pages, and I think like this this story reads very much like it. It reminded me of. Uh, an episode of something like Jonathan Creek or the X-Files. And really, I can't do it just to... I can't justify telling you this story in uh, part of this podcast because it would take me two hours, so you should read it. But I will highlight the salient points. So basically, he then describes how uh, there were scientists who were persuaded to go and look at this creature. And... The source of this beast is supposedly it's owned by this Californian show business millionaire who says that he had discovered the curiosity in a refrigerated warehouse in Hong Kong, purchased it for an undisclosed amount and shipped it back to the United States. The scientists who examined it were told that the Iceman had apparently been frozen in a £6,000 block of ice which had been float, uh, found floating in the North Pacific Ocean by Russian sealers and that ultimately this thing had found its way to Hong Kong. Wow. But, and, and this is kind of the, the subplot to all of the parts of the story of this Minnesota Iceman, the versions of events there change uh, depending on who is telling them right and the actual identity of this californian show business millionaire is also fairly opaque like we nobody ever knows who it is but it is true that three scientists of repute get to go and check this thing out and they have three days but and and here's kind of the big but they're not really allowed to do very much with it they're allowed to take a few samples but they can't remove it from its cage uh, f- from its you know coffin um display case glass coffin yeah there's there's no real ability to take samples apart from a few uh sort of approved skin and fur samples but they're very very small right and and we're talking the late 60s here so so no dna or anything like <clears throat> exactly that. it's really really hard to find you know, to to get a good piece of evidence of this uh, of this exhibit. Now, it turns out that these scientists they do do their research and they come back and they say, "Well, this thing it appears to be real." And this is sort of there is further evidence to corroborate this because 
at some point the showman who is taking this exhibit around all of these fairs because it isn't obviously just at the minnesota state fair yeah he he takes it to canada and on the way back into the u.s the border guards get freaked out because it looks so much like a human corpse basically right and, and they won't let it pass and there is this whole conversation with the border guards around like what evidence can he provide to let them uh get this thing through and it is suggested they suggest like give it an x-ray because the it appears that they are thinking well this thing is you know he's a showman he's taken this thing to canada he's exhibiting it is likely that it is just a it's just a fake and if they just let us take an x-ray of it we'll see that it is and it can pass but he says no the the owner won't allow it and it turns out like so you would think that the explanation for that would be well the reason for that is because it would show it up for being a fake there wouldn't be a skeleton there or it would be an obvious sort of you know some kind of weird taxidermy or film prop uh device but the the reason that is given by the guy who's doing the exhibition is that no this millionaire californian showbiz mogul he is also a really hardcore christian and he knows that this thing is real and the more evidence that is collected to prove that this thing is real the more it adds weight to an anti-creationist traditional church view argument right so but he that's quite a weird argument for a man who is displaying it as a genuine article albeit affairs it is it is quite weird yeah no absolutely and and this is the whole thing like there is lots of contradictions and contrarianism through throughout the whole thing because so there is a quote in here where this uh this showbiz millionaire who remains unknown apparently he told the uh, the person who is exhibiting it, that if this uh, this beast, whatever it is, and he was sure it was real, if it started to cause a problem within the church, rather than like undermine the evangelical Christianity that he was a firm believer and part of, he would rather throw the thing in the ocean. That is a direct quote. He would rather yeah. throw the thing in the ocean and that's probably how it ended up where it was in the first place it was probably somebody else who threw it in the ocean (laughs) froze in an ice block and it all starts over again (laughs) well there's a lot of money at stake in here because this thing is a big money earner and it's not just for the owner of the exhibit it's for the like the the agent who is going around and exhibiting it and this is like a large part of his livelihood so you can see it from two angles you can see it from the no, we don't want this thing to be x-rayed because it would show up that it was a fake. Or yeah. you could see it from the, I don't want the guy who owns this to go and 
destroy right. it because yeah. it shows it's true. And did they get it through customs? They, they did, yeah. So it turns out that there were some friends in high places and there yeah. was a senator involved and there were phone calls and a senator managed to get it through and then it was back in the US. Wow. And then the sort of the the denouement of the story is that this thing is still on display in various parts of the states at the moment. The thing is, it is a copy of the original, or at least that's the story. So as is so often the case with these things, the original has gone missing, in inverted commas, and there is this uh, uh, admitted... I wouldn't say it was fake, this admitted replica, which was purchased um, for uh, $20,000. And it, you know, is is now on display, and and the, the it is put on display as a a replica of something that was real, but right. nobody knows where the real thing is. No, were there knows... photos of the real original? Uh, no, no. Wow. So and and so this is you know it's a mystery wrapped in an enigma because nobody knows who the original owner was. Uh, nobody knows where it came from or where it went to. We've got these three scientists that said it was real, but were they given enough scope? What was yeah. their incentive to say that? Yeah. Um, it it, it does feel like, like a perfect story, doesn't it? You've got, yeah. the per- you know, let alone the, you know, having it shown at travelling fairs, which, you know, e- even big millionaires who uh, I'm thinking of the great showman thing like that. I think he was in you know, Barnum. He, yep. he was famous for taxiderming animals together to create monstrous beasts and stuff that he would show. So, you know, it, it's not an unusual thing to do in traveling fairs and to make no. up a brilliant backstory, which is a great backstory. Absolutely. Absolutely. But, but yeah, intriguing though. But, There's still a bit of you that goes, it could be though, couldn't it? Oh, absolutely. That's how it works, right? Well, I think, like you mentioned, Jeff, and I think this is very similar because this is the fire starter of somebody who wants to know the truth and wants to find out what this thing really is. And and I think, I guess, what I get from the book is he realises he will never find the truth. Even if he thinks he's found the truth, it probably won't be a truth he can rely on. So the enigma of the Minnesota Ice Man will remain as such for the foreseeable future unless there is some kind of extraordinary revelation. But what is exciting for us in this podcast are the stories that he then gathers from the general public right because of the inspiration of this ice man and he was uh, a kid wasn't he when he saw it you can see he was it, a kid yeah you can see as a kid it would just uh, it would have captured my imagination and obsession you know i think we said before my obsession with ufo's i remember the first time i went to the cinema was to see close encounters when i was about 9 years old i was like I'm hooked now. You know what I mean? Yeah. That kind of experience must be incredible. It's, you know, for a young child to think they're seeing this unique creature. Yeah. Yes. 
Yes. You're right. It does. It doesn't matter, does it? Whether it is just a fairground trick or not, it's what it led him to do that's important. Or absolutely, progress, and it right. is that is that journey to find out whether these things exist or not. I guess it's that you know it's the same for you and I. Like there isn't there isn't a moment of the day when I'm in the shower or doing work or making a sandwich where I don't think, do you know what? I'd really love to know what a ghost is. It's always there in the back of my head. Yeah, yeah. But let me tell you some of these stories because these these are genuinely brilliant. And as I say, to read the rest of them, get the book. But I have I've sort of uh, I was going to say hand selected. That's like a hand cut sandwich. Of course, I hand selected <laughs> them. I have hands. That's how I select things. Um. So this one. Uh, it only dates back to 1992, which in my mind is not uh, the 29 years ago that it actually is, but is somewhere around last year. But this comes from a Marine Corps air ground combat center in 29 Palms in California. And it's a Marine who was stationed there. And I'll give you, it's a, it's a fairly short account, but... Uh, it's it's pretty interesting, and I think his words are uh, better than uh, I could interpret them. So he cool. says, Our light-armoured vehicles were parked on a huge area of desert land that is both concrete and sand, depending on where one is, and is several acres in size. One day, while resting, some colleagues noticed in the shade some unknown animal to be about six inches tall and about 18 inches long. It moved so fast that you could not see if it moved at top speed at distances of about 10 to 30 feet per second. One second it would be in front of you and then it would dart away so fast you could not see it and then it would be 15 feet to your left. Its head was a little bigger than a golf ball but more football shaped. It had wings but never did fly. When running at top speed over the sand it threw sand in the air like a boat leaves a wake. It made noises and appeared threatening. It was so intimidating that more than six Marines decided not to mess with it anymore after trying to catch it and made it very mad. So this is like... So let's just consider the size there. So it is... Uh, it's 18 inches long. Yeah. So that is, you know, that is kind of slightly bigger than a chihuahua, really. Yeah. That That's like... Um, like and a insect-like creature, or is this well? A that's that's the thing. Creature? So, so he goes on in the the rest of the report. This thing is black and red, and basically says it looks like a wasp but never flies. Oh, so, <laughs> an, eight, an eighteen-inch wasp. It's an eighteen-inch long, long, six-inch six high wasp. And it's about the size in, of a shoebox. Right, train, yeah, a yeah, box exactly. The trainer comes in. My yes, God. A- and it moves so quickly that the human eye can't keep track of it when it's when it's shifting. Is legging it across it the sand? Sting? Oh, they don't. They don't say that, but I guess that's implied because the, they. Oh, that sounds terrifying. Because he says more than six breeds. That could be seven or a thousand. I don't know how many, but wow. um, but the largest 
wasp known to science is the tarantula wasp, which is um, just three inches long. So this is like considerably bigger than the the one that is uh, known to science. Wow! I nearly I nearly trod on one of those killer hornets when I lived in Japan. Jesus, <laughs> how big are they? They're I think they're about six or six to eight inches. I think. Okay, that's. Uh, but they're big, they're chunky things. We, uh, we, we were out walking when we just had a baby and we, we didn't know there was a park that was completely empty, which is quite rare in Tokyo. We said, it was a lovely day, no one's here. And there were lots of signs up everywhere and we didn't realise that basically the signs were don't go into this park, they're killer hornets, which we didn't realise until we stumbled on about three of them just sat there on the path doing what killer hornets do. So... That was terrifying. Is that killing that, people? Or? <laughs> it wasn't at that point, luckily, but we turned. And actually, I didn't know much about them at that point. I just thought it was a, they look scary and go. It was only really later that we heard their reputation because this was quite a few years ago. But um, that was scary enough. I can't imagine seeing something that huge that just even barely resembles a wasp or a hornet. It was terrifying. That, yeah. No, I mean, I mean... We occasionally get a hornet in our house, and it is it, it's a major international incident. <laughs> when we get a hornet, basically my partner takes the dog out for a walk. They they usually in normal times go to the pub and wait. I then go to the hardware shop and buy the strongest poison that I can get. I shut all the doors. I spray the poison. I go and join them in the pub for an hour and then I come back and look for this thing on the floor and then dispose of it. And even when it's dead, he's absolutely it's terrifying. terrifying. It's like it's like you don't want uh, a wasp or a hornet or any insect to make a noise when you put it into a glass to dispose no, of it. No. But it always goes donk. And you yeah. put it in the glass yeah. and then you yeah, yeah, it's terrifying. I I, I thought you were gonna say <laughs> this is the fourth house we've had because whenever we get a hornet, <laughs> we just leave. Just it's not worth it. I'm not going back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're still servicing three mortgages for houses we've burnt down <laughs> with one hornet that's just flying around. <laughs> <laughs> but that thing's. Is there any other reports of that? Anything like that? Like, the, is it just these marines that's in it? That's, that's terrifying. That, that is. That's the only one that I have of a massive wasp. Um, but I'm, I'm going to sort of. I'm going to dial this up a bit and then dial it down a little bit because. Um, yeah, you're going to dial it up from an 18 inch wasp with the bloody head of a football, American football. Uh, yeah. Well, it was only the. It was the size of a golf ball. It was just the shape. Of, yeah, of but that's football. scary. That'll do me. Yeah, go on. Yeah. So this will give you a clue when I say. So I always want to compare this to things that we know. So uh, the Goliath bird eater tarantula. <laughs> God, yeah, okay. It, yeah. <laughs> it has a leg span of about a foot and can weigh about six ounces. So that's kind of enough flour to make a good deal of pancakes. Yeah. yeah, and uh, so this this particular tarantula, it uh, as it's the largest known, it does as it, as its name suggests eat birds and even small mammals. It will take mice, 
Um, and this is kind of the largest thing known to science. Except in Georgia, there's a fireman called Christopher Williams. And he was mowing his grass. And then he realised that there was something watching him <laughs> through the long grass. And when he turns to have a look at it, it's a wolf spider the size of a house cat. <laughs> and that, that's exactly how he puts it. It's the size of a house cat. Oh, my God. So he legs it indoors to go and get a camera. Um, but when he comes back, this thing has disappeared. Oh, now, which is even more freaky, right? Yeah, it not it? Isn't it? And, and and I think that is the moment, like, if you're mowing your grass that is in your backyard and there's a spider the size of a cat, like, literally, you'd be on the phone to the estate agent that afternoon. Like, why are you moving? <laughs> I just fancied a change. And where are you moving to? I don't know, Iceland? Somewhere <laughs> yeah. like that? Yeah. And, so, wow. what... I think is key to this because this could be, you know, this could be almost anyone read it, but these are people that the author has engaged with and, yeah. and he's put in the book because he trusts their testimony. And well, the also reason... they're a bit like those stories are reminding me a little bit of the stories that Ruth Roper Wilde does. Do you know what I mean? There's not like yeah. some, like the guy with the spider, there's not some, you know, and then I went indoors and it was in my bed. Do you know what I mean? No. It, he saw this weird thing. He said, I saw this weird thing. So, you know, if you're not exaggerating the story past the basic premise of, I saw this weird thing, it was huge. It was, you know, size of a cat is pretty amazing, but it's not like it was the size of a SUV. You know what I mean? No, 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 that's right. No, no. So, I, and I think those are more believable in a way. Yeah, that's right. And the reason that he says... He's a fireman, or or to use the language of the states, a firefighter, is because, you know, it adds credibility. This yeah. is this is an upstanding member of the community. You you don't become a, a a firefighter by making up stories about giant spiders every five minutes. I got a good uh, spider story for you though. I was once on um, holiday in the Caribbean, and in the hotel bar at night. This guy comes running in, comes right up to the bar, shaking like a leaf. Go, can, I, can I have a brandy? Can I have a brandy? And they gave me, I said, are you right? He said, oh, my God. <laughs> he said, we got back to our room, him and his wife, and my wife noticed that on the chair in the corner on one of her dresses was what looked like a giant tarantula, nothing of the size of the fireman's one, just a tarantula. And to British people, that is, like, incredibly scary. Yeah, terrifying. Uh, uh, yeah. Terrifying. And he was like, you know, what do I do? Do I call reception? Do I... And his, and his wife had said to him, you've got to get rid of it. You've got to get rid of it. So he thought he'd do the thing that we do here. He thought he'd get, a, a, like, a massive... He had a big glass. He thought, <laughs> I'll put a glass over the top of tank. it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> put a Put something underneath it, take it outside. And I said, oh, yeah, no, that must have been stressful. You know, no wonder you want a brandy. He said, no, that wasn't the stressful bit. Just as he was about to put the glass over the spider, there was a power cut. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. 
It just everything went completely black, <laughs> and oh they just left. You see, basically, do they just run out of the room? And he'd run to the bar and said, "Give me a brandy." <laughs> oh, oh, that's awful. That's yeah, terrifying. Oh, that is awful. That's made my heart go faster. Oh, that's terrible. Do you know what happened in the end? I, don't, I, I, I think somebody from the hotel must have gone and got the thing out of their room. I don't know, but. Uh, this guy was <laughs> they locked the door and that room was never used again. yeah exactly they went for your thing of houses they closed the whole <laughs> hotel <laughs> god but it's interesting you say that because i've i've got one uh a quick story about a uh a big spider so a friend of mine lives in australia and in australia they've got uh, huntsman spiders and you've probably seen massive, huntsman. Right? They're, they are massive but they're, they're relatively harmless i mean they can sting you a bit but like they won't kill you or anything but um he was driving with his wife on uh, the main road through sydney and he was obviously in the passage seat she's driving and he saw that there was a um this huntsman had made its home in the sun visor on, oh. on the driver's side oh. and he could see the legs kind of wiggling oh my out God. and he was like if i tell her she's gonna freak out she's gonna freak out and we'll probably die and in his quick thinking he was like what am i going to do and so and i think this is genius he decided to start an argument with her about literally nothing so that he would have the excuse to go Stop, Stop the, car the car now. I'm getting out. So he managed to get her so mad that she agreed to stop the car on the hard shoulder. He opened the door and said, get out, get out, get out, get out. And she's like, what's going on? And then he tells her. <laughs> she's like, oh, my God. <laughs> you must. I, I would have been if I was him, I would have been terrified. They'd just go around a corner and then the sun would be in their eyes. Can you imagine? Oh, <laughs> oh no. <laughs> well, look, this you asked for a follow up on the last one. There on, is, yeah, sorry, we got sidetracked. No, no, no. This is good because there is another follow up to this. So um, the author points out that there is another story from Louisiana and this is from a man called William Sladen, who, together with his wife Pearl and their three grandsons, in 1948, they're on their way to church, and they observe, and this is this is the only, only part of the account, they observe a black washtub-sized spider emerge from the brush. And so, like, I don't really know what a washtub is. I'm assuming, like, it's somewhere it- between a basin and a bath. But it's yeah, big, or right? I'm it's big. A bucket, or is it bigger than a bucket? I, I like. I'd say it's. I'd say it's like a bucket and a half, two buckets. Yeah, yeah. I think you're right. Um. Wow. I know. Look, <clears throat> let's not give everyone the creeps because if anyone is listening to this in bed, I know what I'd be doing, and that is like checking the floor, and my feet wouldn't be sticking out the side but interestingly i've I found that just while we were talking i wondered how many like unknown species they were there are out there i mean i don't know how they do this survey but i found a survey on national geographic from 2011 
that says 86% of the Earth's species are still unknown. Now, how you know <laughs> that they're unknown, I'm not sure how the survey works. And I, what do they say? Here Predict our planet is home to 8.7 million species uh, and that are catalogued, we've catalogued less than 15% of them. Now, I'm assuming lots of those are very small things, you know, like a bugs and stuff like that, but still, yeah. 86% unknown. I mean, the question is whether something... I can see why spiders... Yeah, spiders, you're the, the kind of waspy thing. You know, when you get to kind of bigger animals... Well, or apex predators or whatever, then it, I guess it becomes more difficult. But there is still a lot to be discovered, I guess, is the point. The, the thing about spiders is, scientifically, they shouldn't get very big because spiders don't have lungs. They, they use a, a, a way of breathing, which is basically it's a passive form of breathing, which limits their size. So in theory, in science, they shouldn't... They shouldn't be able to get that big. And then the other thing about spiders is they have an exoskeleton and exoskeletons. And I think this actually comes up in like people who talk about the film The Fly because that film is technically impossible because <laughs> flies have an exoskeleton. That's and the bit they were worried about. That's the bit. Accuracy. <laughs> that's the bit they're worried about. Yes. And so um I suppose the thing about, like, I don't know how you come up with the figure of 86%, because how would you know? You have to know what you don't know to know yeah, what yeah, the quantity I is. I haven't read the article. But, it was but, just a quick Google. But. Like, I guess there's a way of kind of going, oh, we discover X number of species every day, so that would mean, yeah, yeah, there's, probably yeah. A, there's probably a thing. But <laughs> it the, says on here they used complex statistics. <laughs> well, they're very complex. <laughs> yeah, there you go. But it... You know, it isn't beyond the realms of possibility, is it, that there is a spider that's gone, like, it's, you know, it's sacked evolution off and gone, no, I'm growing lungs and and I've got a skeleton. So, yeah, we, you know, you never know. And, and do you get to name them if you, I think you get to name them, don't you? Oh, you do, yeah, you do, absolutely. Oh, we could. We should find one and call it the quantum mechanic. <laughs> It's probably going to be a really boring, like, weevil or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Doesn't matter. <laughs> I mean... Well, look, here's here's a creature you would want to name. This is something that will give you the creeps, but it won't give you the creeps in the same way okay. that arachnophobes get the creeps. All right. So this is, this is probably one of the most extraordinary sightings from the book. And bearing in mind... I was obviously going through looking for extraordinary sightings. Yep. And it goes like this. So it's one moonlit evening during September of 2012. Trey, for Trey is the the man who is reporting this. The protagonist. The protagonist and his wife were sitting outside their home in Big Spring, Texas. And that is located in the extreme western part of the state. And their property is situated near a state park in, uh, it describes a semi-arid region. So you've got to imagine that there's a lot of um, sort of uncultivated uh, countryside around them. Yeah, lots of space, big open spaces. Absolutely. And, and more to the point for this story, there's not a lot of light pollution because he says this particular night... The couple were watching a storm that was brewing in the distance. 
And then at some point, they both notice something in the faraway sky approaching them silently. As the mysterious object came closer, it descended till it was only about 30 feet above their heads, at which point it became evident that the apparition was a winged man of giant proportions, 20-foot wingspan, and the entity itself would have stood around 14 feet tall. So it then goes on to describe some of the features of the man himself. So he's clearly a man. He's naked, so they can see he's a man. He has dark skin. He has a small nose. He's making a noise similar to a mouse. And other than that, there's nothing particularly unusual about him apart from being 14 feet tall and having wings that are 20 feet wide. And... (laughs) That sounds like the Mothman of Point Pleasant. It absolutely sounds like the Mothman. But it also sounds like there are other reports of flying humanoid creatures that don't seem to make sense, but they make sense when... You talk about this one. So the, but hold on the, a second. I just had a vision though that they're sat there on their porch, and then suddenly a Rolls Royce pulls up, and a butler with a, an English accent gets out. And he said, <laughs> "I'm looking for my boss, Bruce Wayne. You haven't seen him, have you?" <laughs> I like maybe <laughs> naked Batman. It yeah. would never have made the film franchise. I, I knew yes. he should have had that second martini. <laughs> and and also, rather than speaking in a gruff voice, he makes a noise like a mouse. Yeah. Um, but th- there is uh, there is a story, and and forgive me, listeners, I did try and find the source of it, and I couldn't. But the gist of it is that um, a similarly uh, outside observant couple spot a woman who. Uh, flies over with big big wings she is uh she's completely naked but also jet black so not black as in black skin like a a black human but black as in artificially black as in uh like plastic pvc or something pvc yeah that's exactly that's the way they describe the skin yes that kind of synthetic look um and she is similarly huge uh again as i say completely naked very quiet just flies over like what an extraordinary thing i just had the vision of her landing and saying you haven't seen my partner anywhere have you (laughs) (laughs) try texas (laughs) go on he's gone out without his pants on yeah Um. Yeah, they were that. Yeah, they were. Um, but it's funny. Where were you talking about it? It reminds me we did the episode the other week uh, about ghost love. I think some of the images of the succubus and the ichabus, though these these demonic creatures uh, that kind of prey on people for sex, and sometimes you know, so that's, I think some people can fall in love with them. But uh, mm. there are there are drawings and examples of them. Yeah, with wings, uh, bat-like wings as well, and they're supposed to be big creatures. So, oh, interesting! Interesting. That, that seems to be a thing, you know. And, and weirdly, it's like it's like the um, the Mothman of Point Pleasant, which I'm quite obsessed yep. with. 
Mm. I, I, you know, as we're talking, I thought I've never had a really big interest in things like Bigfoot, but those kind of creatures I think are really intriguing and fascinating. Those kind of mm. winged, because there is, I mean, maybe it's the kind of goth in me, but you know, they are very gothic, aren't they? Rather than Bigfoot, it's just, it's a bit like a large Homer Simpson. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he is. Yeah, he's a bit like the. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So I find those ones more like more fascinating than the, and maybe because they are otherworldly as well. But yeah, yeah. absolutely yeah. interesting though. Well, let's look at a few more flying things. But before before I uh, recount a couple more from the book. I think this is a good time to bring up the um, the giant Thunderbird right. mystery. Has have, have you come across the giant Thunderbird mystery? I I, I don't know a lot about it. Uh, I, I I seem to remember there's quite a famous photo of something that looks like uh, like a pterodactyl or something yeah. like that with with you know prospectors kind of stood there yes. with this thing holding the wings out that's yes. that's what i know about it right, and, right. And, okay. and there is there are some native american legends around yes the thunderbird, the thunderbird. Right? yes yeah. yes yes yeah. so so th- this is where all of those photographs come from but all the ones that you'll find on google are all reproduced from like uh films and television episodes that have oh, been based okay. on this so they're because not genuine photo. they're, they're not genuine photos but there is there is an origin story. So in April, the, the the origin story goes like this: In April 1890, two cowboys in Arizona killed a giant bird-like creature with an enormous wingspan. It was said to have smooth skin, featherless wings, like a bat, and a face that resembled an alligator. Uh, so this description sort of it's very similar to you know what you would imagine for her prehistoric pterodactyl and it's interesting to know that by 1890 we we would have known that that was that that creature existed these two cowboys were supposed to have dragged the carcass back to town where it was pinned with its wings outstretched across the entire length of a barn and this picture of the event may or may not have been published in the local newspaper the tombstone the tombstone epitaph great name for a paper it's a great name for a paper and alongside the photograph was obviously a story now the the quest for this original photograph has been the obsession for many many investigators as i say if you if you google thunderbird photograph tombstone you'll find a whole load of pictures but none of them i guarantee none of them are real they're all made by media companies and so there was a quest to find this edition of the 1890 tombstone epitaph now the the photograph has been elusive, although the closest that anyone has ever got is there was apparently a chat show in the US in the 1970s where somebody had a cutout of this photograph and showed it on camera. 
But unfortunately, as is so often the case with paranormal things, there is no tape recording of that because people didn't tape record live shows in the 1970s there's no tape recording of the photo that was lost right (laughs) absolutely but so there was an investigation and and if you want to hear the ins and outs of it um one of the legends of podcasting micah hanks did a podcast about this a couple of weeks ago and he goes into the ins and outs of finding the story about whether this uh, the account was ever published because there were there was a whole load of denial by like obviously the the tombstone epi- well it's not obvious but the tombstone epitaphic still exists today right. but they couldn't find it in their records because like the records going back to 1890 they're not on microfiche they're not on um pc or anything like that and they said they couldn't find it somebody did track it down there definitely is the story and again was real as imprinted in the paper real yeah 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 there is there is an account of this now the photograph has not been found but the tale is has definitely been published and what i would say is Again, it takes two hours to tell you the full story about how this happens. But if you want to, if you want to fast forward to the end, I'll tell you the end is yes, it was found. The story was published, but we still don't know if there was a photograph. Right. But it appears to be a real story. Now, obviously, there are a whole load of is it is it real or is it real? Yeah. So, is it something that was perhaps concocted to? Um, bring money to the area because yeah. you would if you said that there were thunderbirds here you would attract yeah. uh, rich people who wanted to maybe capture them for exhibitions or whatever and and having a few wealthy people in the town particularly in the 1890s would absolutely stand you in good stead they you know that the fact that people would come to the town to spend money is the lifeblood that's why you get the gold rushes yeah. and and all of that so you can imagine that somebody would plant this story even if the journalist isn't complicit with it you can see why perhaps a business owner who owns some uh you know not just businesses but maybe some land around there is trying to plant a story so that people come down and pay them money to go stalking for these things that is absolutely possible it's also completely possible that it's true so it's one of those again all of these things end up in a cul-de-sac of enigma just go around in circles yeah so you go around in circles it's a bit like you know you can just hear him saying oh i remember the cryptid rush of 1890 in the town i get that story Yeah. yeah yeah totally but so that all that being said and and like i say the there's plenty of sources to go and find that it is to find the true uh tale of the giant thunderbird mystery i would say micah hanks and there's a couple of books about it um maybe we'll do it at a future date but like the i think the in the intermediary part of it is a lot of um trying to find newspaper clippings that people can't find and then in the end a newspaper clipping is found it sounds like that'll end at some point with somebody clearing out a barn 
yeah, yeah. Of finding the paper, do you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. Like, I think that is one that someday somebody will come up with a definitive answer. Yeah. And, um, you know, we're, we'll all be more the wiser. Yeah. But this book contains some really, really fascinating first-hand accounts of flying creatures. And this is that the Thunderbird story was really my launch point for that. So this one comes from a gentleman called Kevin who lives in Michigan. And his story goes like this. Earlier tonight, I was in my backyard with my family when my mother and I both at the same time looked up to see an enormous bird fly due west over the house. I've seen hundreds, if not thousands, of turkey vultures, and this was not one. It was approximately 50 to 75 feet above the treetops of mature oak trees. And I looked at the tree which it disappeared behind and then looked at where the wingtips were in comparison. Straight below that is a 12-foot cargo trailer that we have, so I estimate that the bird had at least a 12-foot wingspan. So this is basically a fairly, you know, it it's a mundane account, but what mm. what the eyewitness is saying there is that they've seen a bird with a 12-foot wingspan fly over their house. And like that is that it's not as big as the claimed tombstone thunderbird yeah but that is a big bird big. well i think the Michigan, biggest yeah. uh the albatross that's got about a 10 foot wingspan i think uh, right there's well, i can't remember which one it is there's one of the albatrosses the big one that's got 10 foot so so you do get birds with that level of wingspan but it's quite rare and i guess if you if you live in that local area you know if those kind of birds were flying there regularly or birds of that size so yeah see something strange for them to have to report it i think yeah i mean it is possible of course there's something like an albatross and it's really difficult to estimate size. the the size of things that are yeah. flying over but this obviously caught their eye and like it seems i just i just find it fascinating that somebody who knows the area really well and yeah. basically what they're saying is yeah there's a loads of huge birds that fly over but this one was something else was something else <laughs> yeah. exactly um then there's a there's another brilliant story from a woman who grew up who grew up in uh missouri She's called Georgia. That's why it confused me because <laughs> right. it's, it's all accounts. So she's she's from Missouri and she grew up on her parents' farm. And uh, Missouri, as I understand, is has a lot of land and is quite big. So she is walking around the grounds of her parents' farm and she sees two huge black shapes in the tree line so what so what she's talking about in the tree line in in her explanation so the tree line there's there's like a, a copse of trees and then within that copse of trees on the edge of the field where she's walking are these two huge shapes and she can't she doesn't really compute it at the time she describes that in the back of her mind she's thinking 
oh, it's probably like aeroplane parts. She doesn't know why she thinks that, but she's like, her brain is like, well, if there's big things in the trees, they probably fell out of the sky. Right. And it's probably aeroplane parts. That is until one of these things opens its wings and begins hovering above the tree. And she then says she immediately felt she was looking at something that was prehistoric. It didn't look like it had feathers. It looked Mm. like it had skin when the wings opened. And she doesn't describe the size of the wings apart from the fact that they're enormous. But she does say the span of the wings was enough to scare me. And she says these things were sizing her up and she felt they could have done her serious harm. So she then goes on to describe like, um, so she obviously doesn't get a good look at them because they're sort of silhouetted. They're just, just above the trees, but there's a pair of them. One stays in the tree, one hovers. And she describes these skin-like wings but she feels like this malevolent kind of aura around them. And she's immediately kind of terrified. Then she turns and runs back home and tells her mother about it, who doesn't believe a word of it. But she says, like, for years afterwards, into her adulthood, she just kept looking up. This is something that really affected the rest of her life. She she says that she knows what she saw. She knows that it wasn't something that is sort of known in inverted commas. Yeah. And she felt like it, it could have, you know, essentially eaten her. That's, yeah, that's yeah. the attacked kind of the thing. Her, yeah. It must be um, even worse as well when you're, you're not even believed. That must be yes. quite, that might, you know, to have that experience and then, nobody take it seriously even your own parents must be that must be terrible absolutely and and i think that is like why you get um those those accounts of people who talk about uh cryptids whatever they are any of the accounts that we've had today or bigfoots or whatever of course it's going it's a huge challenge to get anybody to believe what it is that you're saying because they think that you've just misidentified something but if you've actually seen it and but you've got no evidence it must be so frustrating so frustrating Mm -hmm. um but those things they like she says they seem prehistoric and i'm going to finish with what people claim to be real dinosaur sightings because these are the things this is what really gets my heart racing and i really wish i could see it so i know like in in real terms i've been fascinated like over the last 20 years we know that as far as science is concerned birds are incredibly close to dinosaurs and there's a russian study where they did some gene engineering on chickens and the chickens grew tails Mm. and so you you can sort of show that the birds are an evolutionary onward point from 
from these, you know, these things that walk the earth. Yeah. But these are people who actually saw what appear to be surviving dinosaurs. So this is from Texas. In fact, it's in a town called Hebronville. It's a really short account. And she just says, my friend actually saw a small dinosaur here on Main Street. It was evening when she saw it. You up? In the street, that's fantastic. In the street, yeah. Yeah. On the main street, she says, it was evening when she saw it cross the road about 8.45pm. She was driving and saw the small creature crossing the street in the headlights of an oncoming car. It looked exactly like a small T-Rex. When when was this? Do we know when this was? Uh, yeah, this is uh, uh, two. This is two thousand and nine. Wow. Then, in the same area, this is another account. Um, so th- this person is responding to uh, this initial report. Just a couple of months before I'd actually heard the creature, I could only describe as a dinosaur. I'd been asleep. It was at night time, maybe one or two a.m. I had awoken, and just at that moment, I heard an unfamiliar screech or something running by my window. We have an AC unit in the window, so it's basically open all the time. I heard its footsteps as it ran by, and it was heavy, whatever it was. I could hear it clearly on the ground. As it ran further away, I could hear it screech again. It was like nothing I've ever heard in my life. It was loud too, and I wonder if anyone else heard or saw it. I live in an apartment complex, and I just laid there in bed, completely bewildered what I'd just heard. And then the book continues, so the author continues to find different reports, and he talks about, so in this particular area around Hebronville, there are people that find... um, uh, like uh, bones and remains of predated animals. There are reports of like dogs and other pets going missing. And like all of this comes together to present sort of a compelling case that there is some kind of animal, whether it just resembles a dinosaur or whether it is a a genuine living Jurassic beast is, is yet to be known, but there is something that's going around there and it just doesn't seem to get the press that like your Yetis and your Bigfoots do. But you know, even if it's someone paying an elaborate prank, you'd still want to investigate it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of oil and oil in that state so you know there's definitely some dinosaurs there somewhere even oh if they, yeah, yeah absolutely or that does yeah. remind me of that that thing that hit the internet though with um do you remember that picture of steven spielberg with a rifle with the triceratops from oh yes yes <laughs> from jurassic park and somebody posted saying he'd killed some kind of animal in Africa and he was a hunter. It's brilliant. I love that story. Yes, yes, that was very good. That was very good. I like the fact they're small, though, that, you know, that they're kind of these miniature, a miniature T-Rex. Because you can see people like, you know, an armadillo or we've talked about pangolins before being mistaken for dinosaurs. But there's there's nothing really that's got that 
guess there's like you say there's some birds that might but it's quite a distinctive looking creature a t-rex even a miniature one but in terms of evolution it makes sense that like it after the the great extinction event of the dinosaurs only smaller animals survived and the sort of um received wisdom is that obviously you get tiny mammals that evolve into later larger mammals because of the particular oxygen and co2 in the air that's why you get like the you're you're walking with beasts kind of thing yeah you get squirrels which evolve into horses because they're absolutely enormous um and the assumption has always been that apart from the bird lineage and perhaps also like your lizards everything else disappeared but maybe some like because there were some really cute little dinosaurs that were you know a few inches tall maybe they carried on but they just quite rare and they're one of those 86 percent we haven't discovered yeah yeah i was thinking about that because even uh, you know even if it's completely wrong that figure even if it's out by half <laughs> or a quarter, even if it's only a quarter of the eighty-six percent, that's still there's still room to manoeuvre. You know, admittedly, yeah, like yeah. I said, they're probably most of them are microscopic, but well, you know, there could be quite a few that slip through the net. It came up. This there was week. a monkey recently, wasn't there? That was discovered. Or there was an ape discovered recently, a new species that no one had heard of, and it was you know that's quite a big animal. Yes. And and also it was discovered that under the deep sea ice in the Antarctic, there are creatures which shouldn't have existed. So that was in the Guardian, like, last Friday, I think. Right, right. So, like, animals that thrive on... Well, we we now know, although it wasn't well known to science like 40 years ago, that you have those extremophiles that live on um, on volcanic... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so there, like there are and stuff, aren't they? Yeah, so there are animals that live under like a mile thick of ice, yeah. where there's no sunlight, but they're eating something. Yeah, yeah. And and the reason for going down that way and looking for them is unfortunately because we were trying to find out how much damage we've done with like microplastics and stuff. But that brings us to discovering these animals that which we never knew existed yeah and also a bit of the kind of thawing of because there's that thing in russia isn't there with with the thawing of the uh, permafrost and stuff in siberia all these woolly mammoth bones are uh, not real ones but not not live woolly mammoths but w- woolly mammoth preserved bones and even whole animals are being yeah you know thawed out and uh, brought to the surface or refound. I described that really badly, but you know what I'm saying. Um, I do, yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. So uh, of all the ones we've talked about today, I think I'd, I'd, uh, I'd quite like to see a flying one, you know, like the ones that you were talking about where they were flying over the farms and stuff. You know, the thunder, the thunderbirdy type one or a kind of mothmanny type creature. I'd like to see one of those. I definitely don't want to see that giant sprinting Olympic sprinting wasp that's no. about the size of a shoebox. That sounds terrifying. Don't yeah. know about you. No, I, I mean, I don't know what it says about me, but I really want to 
find a Thunderbird or something. And obviously, I don't want to, like, kill it because that isn't my natural inclination. But, my God, I'd like to try a roast one. It would be, <laughs> like, stuff it, serve it with roast potatoes, gravy, Yorkshire pudding. Oh, I bet it'd be lovely. The spicy wings would be massive. You'd never get through one of those. Oh, it'd be so nice. Oh, imagine Kentucky Fried Thunderbird. I'd be like being in the Flintstones. That really would. Oh, it'd be so good. That's like, just a leg would serve the whole family. Yeah, yeah. But look, uh, I would say, like, because of, like, we try and keep these things to, you know, less than 12 hours there isn't enough time to cover the book but go and get the book uh it's available on amazon kindle and paperback for less than a tenner as most of the books we cover are he's a fantastic author really engaging amazing stories uh seek seek out the um tombstone thunderbird mystery because there's a lot to be discovered in there And if you want us to cover that a bit more, I'm really, really happy to um, uh, look at other aspects that other podcasts haven't covered. But if you want to do a podcast now that covers it, I would check out uh, the Micah Hanks show, which you can find on all the platforms. And um, yeah, and let us know what you think. And if you've seen any really unusual creatures, and the one that I'm looking out for, so I was told by a friend of my grandmother and this would be so i'd be 10 so i'm guessing it'd be about 1985 1986 she told me about a giant rabbit that lived where where she lived so this is up north in the cheshire area and she said that she had heard it as a child in the 1930s and she wasn't joking around she said this thing really exists and i have done a load of research on giant rabbits and i've come up with nothing but she was like I, she there definitely are those wasn't ones that are like as big as dogs but are you talking bigger than that oh no bigger no no okay. she's talking like, like elephant a, size uh i don't know elephant size but she was like it would jump over fences and right, stuff okay. wow. and and she said like her parents warned her not to go in certain places after dark because there was these giant rabbits and i've been unable to cover any uncover any legends of giant rabbits in the uk not not any with any degree of authenticity anyway but if any of our listeners heard that from their grandparents or have heard stories about giant rabbits, I would love to know because that for me is an enduring mystery. Wow. That sounds good. I like the idea of giant rabbits. Mm. Yeah. Well, that was fascinating. I really enjoyed that. And that book sounds amazing as well. We'll put links to that uh, in the description of the podcast and uh, we'll put links on our social media to that and try and uh, and we'll put some images up of uh, of the thunderbird as well even though they're not real we'll say that they're not real although i always get in trouble when i say things are not real people online get very upset so we will <laughs> we will have somebody say no these are real stop saying they're unreal but we're pretty certain that they're uh they're definitely not real. from mo- movies but it, if if anybody if any of our listeners have got 
access to the real Thunderbird photograph. Not only would we like to hear about it, but you are probably sitting on quite yeah. a large amount of money. Actually, that's true. So anyone out there in the in the States who's not been in their loft for a long time, just go and see if you've got any newspapers up there from, what, 1890, was it? It's 1890. So what yeah. was it called? The, tombst- it the, t- the Tombstone Epitaph. Oh, what a great... You know, that's enough. Just even to have a copy of the Tombstone Epitaph from around that time would be fantastic enough. That would but, be amazing, wouldn't it? But what let, history. But, but yeah. let us know if you find the original article and photo. We'd, we kind of clumsily and inadvertently solved the mystery would be hilarious. That <laughs> <laughs> would be brilliant. Also, though, I would be really intrigued about any adverts from it at the time. Like, it'd be so cool to see okay. what the trades were in Tombstone in 1890. It'd be fascinating. Like, I don't think because the difference between the UK and the US was so great at that time. Like, we we know it only from cowboy movies, and yeah. we call it the Wild West. Yeah. But it, I think, that is a pastiched. Uh, view of what it was really like it would be so lovely if somebody had some actual photographs of newspaper print from that time and showed us some of the stories i bet there was some amazing journalism going on yeah and this is like the birth of the greatest democracy in the world so it'd be super cool to see some of that stuff i'd love to see it yeah definitely definitely or you know just get in contact with us for anything we do like hearing from you excellent ben well uh, we, uh, I'm going to have a look in the back garden to see if there's any giant rabbits and we'll see you next time on the Quantum uh, Mechanics I, yeah I'm going to go off and roast a massive bird <laughs> see you next time see you next time the quantum mechanics